Hello, world, and welcome to Extra Shot with Alicia Fernandez-Miranda. That's me, author of my what-if year, ex-CEO, sometimes intern, coffee-obsessed mom. Extra Shot is a podcast, a talk show, an advice column. It's that and more, but really, it's about bringing some energy, enthusiasm, and insight into your day. Join me and my incredible friends, authors, actors, activists, and even other people whose jobs do not start with the letter A, for a half hour of laughs and delight. Because we all need an extra shot of something. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Extra Shot. I am your host. Any guesses? I think you know by now. It's Alicia Fernandez-Miranda, and I am just really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about today's interview with the amazing and brilliant philanthropist, mom, and deeply spiritual person, Sonal Sachdev Patel. Now, I've known Sonal for a long time. We met in the philanthropy world. She runs her family's foundation that does extraordinary work in the UK and India. And Sonal has always kind of had this like aura around her for me. You know, I did not grow up particularly religious in spite of having two religions. I very much connect with and appreciate all of the cultural elements of my mom's religion. My mom is Jewish. My dad is Catholic. And so we did church and temple and all of the celebrations. And I actually just thought that was like a normal thing that you celebrated all the holidays. And you know, but I would say that these spiritual elements of religion, if I'm being totally honest, have always eluded me. But I'm very curious about them. I'm curious about what they feel like and what it feels like for people who do connect to that as such an important part of their life. And so when I asked Sonal to come on the podcast and talk to me about not her amazing book, which she's written one book with another on the way, not about her incredible philanthropy, although we're going to touch on that a little bit in this interview, but just really about who she is as a person, how she centers that element of her life. And I think you're going to love it. Before I read you her bio, I just want to read you this one little section from her book, uh, Gita, The Battle of the Worlds, which was published by Harper Collins a few years ago. So she's talking about, you know, how to describe this feeling, this feeling of, you know, what she feels when she connects with her spirituality, her faith. How can we imagine it? First, imagine your mother touching your forehead when you're ill, her cool hand soothing, calming, reassuring, smelling comfortingly of her. Then think of your father holding your arm through the jostling of a busy market, firm and enveloping, never losing you. Think of their voices as they hum well-sung melodies or the way their eyes gaze upon you when you learn something new, lighting up with your victories, supporting you through your failures. There they stand to protect you and cheer you and guide you. Krishna was that. So you're in for a treat today, guys. Let me tell you about the incredible Sonal before I let her start talking along with me. Sonal Sachdev Patel is the CEO of GMSP Foundation, a family foundation established by entrepreneurs Ramesh and Pratibha Sachdev, which supports strong frontline organizations working to improve the lives of some of the most vulnerable people in India and the UK. GMSP balances an evidence-based approach with patience and empathy, leading to meaningful, longer-term relationships and measurable impact. 
After graduating from Cambridge with an MA in Economics and Management Studies, Sonal started her career as a strategy consultant at Bain & Company, specializing in private equity due diligence. She worked in London and Delhi before moving back to the UK to join GMSP. Sonal is the co-author of Gita, The Battle of the Worlds, and she's awesome. I hope you enjoy this extra shot today with Sonal Sachdev Patel. Sonal, my wonderful friend, welcome to Extra Shot. Thank you. (laughs) Are you afraid of being here with me on this podcast? (laughs) No, although it did say meeting recording, and then you could have either got got it or leave the meeting. I was just like, um, uh, but I hit got it. I'm okay. I've sort of, I, I feel a little bit like I've peer pressured you into this, but I think in a good way, right? Yeah. Peer, no, encouraged, peer encouraged you into it. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to have such a great time. And I just, oh, I just really wanted to talk to you. You know, so you and I know each other through work. I actually, I was in a meeting last week or a couple of weeks ago that with someone you had introduced me to, and he asked how we met. And I was like, I, I can't remember. Did we meet at Trust Women for the first time? Is that where we first met? Do you know, I remember meeting you because you were sitting on the side. You were not in the main session. So I was like, oh, she looks cool. And then out <laughs> of your purse came a pink Prada like, <gasps> business card holder. Oh, yeah. I just thought, I need to go and talk to this woman. My pride and joy. I remember sitting there with you. And that was so long ago. Yeah. But I was like, I actually, I actually don't even remember how we met, which is, I think, the sign of a good friendship and professional relationship. And so we talk about work and philanthropy and all of those things I did a lot of in my pre-what-if year. But I really wanted to have you on to just talk about all of these other elements of your life that I find extremely fascinating. So we're going to have a great time. Great. (laughs) So I don't want to spend this whole time talking about philanthropy, but I think it is worth opening up with the thing that did bring us together. So you are the first philanthropist in residence at the LSE. I just read your like fantastic little article that you wrote on their website explaining your role. Do you refer to yourself as a philanthropist? Like how do you introduce yourself to people when you talk about your work? Do you use that term? No, I hate that word. And I think loads of people hate that word. But it's so funny because I'll often say to people, they'll go, what do you do? And they kind of, they just want a quick answer, like doctor, accountant. And that's obviously what they're expecting me to say. But then I I say, I run a charity. And then they say, oh, what does the charity do? And then I say, well, we kind of support marginalized groups in India and the UK. And they're like a little bit confused because they also want me to just say, I work for cancer research or I work for Save the Children and that can be the end of the conversation. And then it goes round and round and round and then they go, oh, so you're a philanthropist. And I'm like, "Uh, kind of, yeah. But I mean, the root of the word is a really nice, like it's actually a really nice word. It means, it's like it's from the Greek, philane to love and philanthropy. Don't worry, my Greek is very rusty. I studied Greek, so I should know, but it's like love of humankind. It's got such a lovely meaning, but I feel like it conjures up this idea of some person who thinks they're really important sitting at a big desk writing checks, and that's not what we do at all. So yeah, I don't like that word. You have been running your family's foundation for how many years now has it been? Gosh, um, about 13 or 14 years. Which is kind of wild, actually, that it's gone so long. And I think when we first met, you know, I've seen such an evolution in the work that you do. But something that hasn't changed, I think, is how you center, you know, you talk about having this guiding philosophy of spiritual solidarity. Your foundation is abbreviated as GMSP. It stands for God, My Silent Partner. And 
you know, I mean, you and I have talked about this personally, and as part of the reason for wanting you on the podcast is that this, you know, you're so upfront in such a fantastic way with your faith and your spirituality and what you believe. And as a person who doesn't really identify with that, you know, I don't identify with any religion or anything like that. It's a mystery to me, but like in a way that I'm very curious about exploring. So I want to get into that on this podcast. So maybe let's start with a bit about the foundation. You work with your parents on it. And, you know, what What does that mean when you talk about spiritual solidarity with people? Yeah, so, well, so it's a family foundation. It started by my parents. Their names are Ramesh and Pratibha Sajdev. And I always like to say their names because they can always keep themselves so much in the background, but, you know, it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for them. And we came to you, to IG, and I think like a lot of people who start on philanthropy started off with this like, okay, we want to make a difference, but like, how should we do that? And so then, you know, we were thinking around the kind of topics that we would be supporting, but then we realized that, you know, what really guides this foundation is the values that guide our family. And those are kind of values of love and trust and humility. And then we asked ourselves the question, well, like, well, what sits below these values then? Like, where do these values come from? And it was this feeling of spiritual solidarity, like this feeling that we're connected to all beings on earth and that there's a sense of shared humanity that within us, there's this light that exists and that connects us all. And although we celebrate our individuality, that actually regardless of like our gender, our sexual orientation, et cetera, we're kind of the same And so that's sort of where we came up with this terminology of like, well, we're together with others in spiritual solidarity because we connect in spirit. But I've been really careful about the language that I use because like even the name God, my silent partner, to me, that's such a beautiful name. But for a lot of people, when you use the word God, it's just really like a Marmite word and they straight away switch off. Um, So that's kind of why we stopped using it. Did you grow up in a very religious and or spiritual family like was that always part of your life from as early as you can remember yeah well my was from my mum my dad um was not religious at all and then he suddenly became really religious because he met his guru like a religious teacher when I was probably about 12 so he literally did like a 180 degree turn but we did grow up in a really spiritual way and people sometimes ask me about that because it wasn't like you know we went to temple every weekend or it was so kind of infused into our everyday lives so you know I have a twin sister and when we would we would like be fighting about who was going to wear the pink dress or whatever it was <laughs> you have twins you know all about I know they don't and often my... fight over a dress but they fight over everything else <laughs> yeah exactly and so my mum would say to us you two are going to have to come back together for incarnations until you learn to get along. So you might as well learn to get along now. And do you know, just like things like this. Oh my God, that like blows my mind. I love that. Yeah. So they would just kind of like throw it around. And so it was just really part of our everyday life. And I didn't feel like it was, oh, they made us sit down and, you know, do prayers together. But we did... Uh, yeah, so it was kind of, yeah, kind of kind of part of our everyday life. And my mum was a really good example. And I think a lot about the way I was parented because it worked for me. So I want to try and think what bits of that I can now pass down to my mm-hmm. children. And one of the things my parents did is they never pushed us and they never judged us. So they never said like, you know, you should really be like doing your prayers. Or you should really, they just did it themselves. And now I look back and I I have that memory of watching them. My mother, like sitting with this yellow paged book, reading it every morning in front of this like alcove. We had like an alcove in the wall and she put lots of the 
sort of deities, but there was Jesus in there and Krishna in there. And love it. Yeah, it was amazing. You know, I, I grew up with some per- periodic like structures of religion, more organized religion. So on the major holidays, I would be uh, at temple with my mother's mother because my mom is Jewish. I would be, you know, for Easter and Christmas, I'd be at church with my Cuban grandmother who is very devout Catholic. So I, I kind of knew like the the rules and what you were supposed to be doing. But I think that that, I'm, I'm not sure. It's hard to remember if I like ever felt that concept of faith and of like real belief. And I know this is probably the most impossible question, but what what does it feel like? And has your faith ever been tested? Like, have there been moments in your life where you've been like, I'm not sure I believe all this anymore? Or has that never happened? Yeah, such a good question. I mean, um, that question about faith, uh, like, what does it feel like comes up in the book that I wrote, Mm -hmm. uh, I co-wrote, where we're describing, we're trying to describe what is this universal spirit? Like, what does it feel like? And one of the examples we give is like, I could, if you'd never tasted an orange, I could tell you like, oh, it's so sweet. And it's like orange and it's so juicy. And you know, you you get a real sense of, oh, this fruit just sounds so magical. Mm. But until you taste that fruit, you really just don't, you'll never understand. So it's like, but but in an attempt to try and, and explain it, it just feels really sort of peaceful. And for me, it feels like a real security, like in this sort of uncertain, insecure world, it feels like a real anchor. And it does come quite naturally to me. I feel like I was born with that feeling, but then I believe in reincarnation. So I feel like, you know, this has been, this is just one page in a many chapter book. So I know we're going a little bit, my husband always says to me like, you talk about things like consciousness and reincarnation and people who don't know this, they have no idea what you're talking about. So I know that maybe is not what you you might be used to. I mean, I, I actually do think even to the point that, you know, my, my children take religious education in school for a wide variety of religions. And, you know, they they know about those basic concepts. I am now going to use your mom's line all the time, basically. That's my new line. I'm going to be like, until you and your sister learn to get along, you're going to keep being reincarnated as people in conflict. I think it's genius. So yeah. thank you for the new parenting strategy. I mean, how does it work with your girls? Are you just trying to kind of provide that same example that your mother provided for you and hoping that it works? Or do you parent them in a different way? Like, what's it like? You have two girls, you know, what is that? What is that feeling like? Yeah. What is that parenting strategy like? Well, it's actually, I feel like it's a real guiding force in my parenting strategy. Because as you know, we live in Northwest London and they go to a school, which is, you know, really competitive. And I have to really hold myself back sometimes because I'll be around these other parents and they'll be saying, oh, we're going to this class and that class. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, we've just spent a week doing meditation because I took them to Los Angeles for a week-long meditation kind of camp where they're with other teens and they'd go to the beach and then they'd learn techniques of meditation and then they'd have classes on friendship and like how to get along with other people and all of this sort of stuff. And I have to keep reminding myself, what is the purpose of life? And this is the kind of thing my dad would say to me. He's like, what are we doing here? Like, are my kids here to get straight A's? Of course, they're not going to listen to this and I want them to be getting straight because <laughs> I, I do have that immigrant personality strongly embedded in me. But I feel like that, you know, I know plenty of people that did brilliantly academically and are they happier now than the people that didn't do brilliantly academically? Probably not. So I'm just trying to expose them to lots of different paths. And actually my older daughter um, messaged my husband and I when we were in Italy saying, I've just been to Christian society. 
I loved it so much. And it was like such a sort of over the top message. I thought she was joking. She was like, I found Jesus, basically. (laughs) She'd heard the story of how Jesus had forgiven somebody. And it was just so wonderful. And Jesus is so non-judgmental. And yeah, I just literally thought, she's joking. (laughs) But she was being... But she was not. No, she's being fully serious. And when I came back, she was like, would you mind if I was Christian? And I, I said... Of course not. Like, I would love it if you were Christian or Buddhist or Muslim or anything. That, but I would. I feel that if you have some faith, mm. it's going to help you in life. But again, if you believe in reincarnation, then you could have been any religion. So I'm like, well, whatever. And Hinduism is a really open religion. It's yeah. kind of like come one, come all. We respect everyone. We're like, we'll see you in heaven. We are not going to have a special place. <laughs> we're all going to be there. You're gonna Everyone's going to be there together. Yeah, I'm going to be with my budgias. It's going to be great. Is there a hell in Hinduism? No, not really. I mean, my guru tells a like a one-liner where someone says, do you believe in hell? And he says, where do you think you are? I know. So I don't think this world is... That's how I felt when I was in an Italian airport over the summer. I felt like (laughs) if I ever did go to hell, that's what it would be for me. And the floor would be covered with Legos. It would just be an inefficient Italian airport with the floor covered in Legos. (laughs) But that is quite a good point. (laughs) That's so funny about your daughter. I remember when I was in... Middle school, I guess, like eighth grade. So probably around the same age, I started going to this, uh, like Friday nights, there was this like youth club and it was a Christian youth club. And it was because all these really cute boys went there. And so for like six months, my parents thought I was having a religious awakening, but it turned out I just, I had the hots for this boy that was there like every weekend. They gave you pizza and you like hung out. And I was like, oh my God, this is fantastic. This is a good religion to be part of. (laughs) But it's interesting. I do think about it. You know, my kids went to a Christian school for the first five or six years of their education in London. Their school now is non-denominational, but we go to, uh, there's like chapel every Saturday after Saturday school, which is, they hate that they go to Saturday school, but that's <laughs> part of it too. And, you know, so they learn the hymns and it's very, very open, but that kind of structure and organizing principle is in their lives, I think much more than it's in mine. But unlike me, they're growing up with parents that don't really associate with any particular faith. Whereas like my parents were not the same religion, but they both participated in their religion kind of to varying degrees. So I always wonder what they're going to feel like. And I mean, I think you look at the macro level. So I pulled up a stat. I did some research. In the 2021 census, 37% of people in England and Wales identified as having no religion. And this is up from 25% 10 years ago, right? So the trend feels like the country is getting more secular. Do you find it challenging to operate as a person of faith in a society that is increasingly more secular? Hmm, It's a really good question, but it's interesting that the question was on religion. What did you say it was? Do they associate with a religion? The question is, do, yes. So what what religion do you identify as? And that's one of the options, no religion. You're right. I guess it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not spiritual or they don't have Exactly. So that's what I was going to say. And I feel like it's religion that has that word is because and what's associated with it has become really divisive. And if you look at like wars and even I would like say that I'm spiritual. I am, I guess I would say I was religious, but then I feel like a lot of people who say that they're religious are quite judgmental or, mm-hmm. you know, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. And like, um, I'm vegetarian and my husband eats fish and chicken and it's, so I hear still, he gets so judged by people. 
but he is such a wonderful individual. Because he, he gets he, judged by vegetarians for eating fish and chicken? Well, religious people. Okay. Not vegetarians, okay, like, okay, okay. Um, you know, especially Hindus. And yeah. actually, like, it doesn't even say in our, we don't have a thou shalt not, thou right. shalt not this, thou shalt not that. But it's kind of, it's actually more of a cultural thing. Yeah, I hate that. I hate it that he would be judged when he's, he does, you know, yeah, he's dutiful. He's a good father. He's a good son, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like people identify less with religion because a lot of religions come with a lot of rules. Like you said it right at the beginning. You were like, you know, I knew I wasn't supposed to do this and I knew I wasn't supposed to do yeah. that. And I was thinking, but, you know, if it's a positive spirituality, then it's like with Carlos, you love him. No one's making you be with him. You're with him because you want to be. And I, like, that's what I feel like faith should be. Yeah. It should never be like, if I don't do this, I'm going to go to that bad place. God's going to punish me. Like, no, who wants to be part of a, like a faith or a religion like that? For me, it's joyful. Um, and also I think it should be experiential. So I think a lot of religions are like, come here, sit and listen to this service. And, you know, how are you supposed to feel? Whereas like we do meditation. And so we sit in silence and meditation. In that meditation is where like I feel so much peace and mm. even joy. And that's what makes me want to do it again. And then kind of develop this relationship with this higher power that is, is that, that was that feeling of security that I was talking about before. Have you been meditating your whole life? Like since you were a kid? Yeah, since I was 11. But that's not to say that I found it easy. Like I said to someone the other day, I think it took me seven years to learn to just still my body. And she was like, no, no, it couldn't have taken that long. And I'm like, no, no, it did. And I, and I still think I fidget. So um, that's why I'm trying to teach that to my girls. I'm yeah. like, if I were to die tomorrow, what would I feel like I would have wanted to have left you with? And if you've got some sense of like a purpose, a connection, then, you know, I think you'll be okay. Will it make a difference if you know how to do algebra? No. Or write a creative story. So, you know, whilst I think these things are important, I feel like we're totally missing the point with our children and we don't teach them a lot of these deeper methods. And yeah. like what I find really lovely actually these days is how you have all these like well-being podcasts and, you know, people are going for sand bath meditations. And I love that Dr. Ranjan Chatterjee's podcast. Do you listen to that? No. I've not heard of it. Oh, well, he'll, I'm sure he'll be listening to yours soon. Put it on I'll the list. To you after. <laughs> He's a doctor and he gets all these different people to come on, talk about things that I think sort of really tough, either sit adjacent or are in spirituality. And, it, you know, it's all these things like, you know, journaling and positive affirmations. All of these things are things that we've been doing since we were kids, but they weren't sort of popular, like, popular right. or fashionable to do. So, yeah, I think those sorts of things are are coming in like if the question was different mm -hmm. not about religion I think there'd be a lot more positive feedback it's actually really interesting because you know I think I'm sure people have and do make a connection between this rise in like self-care quote-unquote self-care solutions you know arguable how how much of that is actual self-care and how much of it is not but but all of these elements of meditation, centering yourself, all of these things that are part of various religions and organized religions. And as people have moved away from that, there's this thing that they're still looking for, you know? I mean, we talk about a loneliness epidemic all the time and this need to connect and how people are feeling. And, you know, I, I think that there is an argument to be made probably for the role that has been vacated as people have disconnected from their spirituality, maybe in a, in a macro level, like not individuals, but on the societal level, 
mm-hmm. and what people are trying to fill it with. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. And it's also, you know, it's like about the kind of, like I was saying at the beginning, my parents would be like, ask us these really deep questions. Why is it like we don't discuss with our children? Like, what do you think you're doing here? Like, why are you on this earth? You know, what? And like, right. Okay, I don't know. There'll probably be the answer, but yeah. why do we not ask them these deep questions? Like, what is the purpose of life? Death. I really feel like death is something that is such a taboo subject. We don't discuss it with our children or with anyone. And yeah. even when our kids ask us, we don't want to obviously make them insecure. So we're like, nothing's going to happen to mommy and daddy. You're going to be fine. But that's really not like necessarily the right answer because like people in their life that they love will pass away. Yeah. And, and what's going to happen? And I've really seen in my work, but also in my life, how death is such a like leveler in the sense that you can be such a sort of important, you know, quote unquote person and your mother passes away and it breaks you as well as if yeah. you're quote unquote an unimportant person. So we all experience that pain in the same way, but we're not given any sort of guidance about how to get over grief. And, and all of these things are linked with spirituality because Again, if you come back to this feeling of like, okay, but it's just a cycle and we incarnate and you've got the soul, then the body dies, but it doesn't feel so final. Yeah. So have you answered those questions when your kids have asked you them? Have you answered them honestly? Or do you so, you answer with your beliefs? I've talked to them about the concept of the soul. And mm-hmm. in our religion, when someone passes away, similar to, to others, we don't just have the funeral, but we pray for 13 days. Mm-hmm. And so we'll often go to the prayers and we'll see this sort of, you know, the person's picture will be there with a flower garland around and everyone will say these prayers. And so I've used that as an opportunity to talk to them and be like, you know, um, where is that person? And again, my guru says that you will meet again. And there's a really lovely a book that I love so much called Many Lives, Many Masters by mm-hmm. Dr. Brian Wise. Have we, I'm, have no, I ever told No, we're going to link, we'll link to all this stuff though in the notes because these are like- And books. I'm going to send it to you. It's a really popular book. It's written by an American doctor. But anyway, he talks a lot about- reincarnation but I've actually I'm in the process of writing a I've written a book about death and grief in a positive way for children it's a it's going to get published next year but I can't say who the publisher is yet unfortunately for that reason that I want my children to be talking about death in a positive way and when I say in a positive way I mean like we see death all around us like we've got four seasons when it's autumn or winter we're not crying because we know that well spring and summer is coming around and there are so many examples of those kind of cycles in nature and so I talk to them about those things and also about like when we're afraid why are we afraid Mm. like what's what causes fear yeah Um, and it's like because I don't know what's going to happen or I feel insecure and so all of those sorts of questions that I don't know sometimes I think they're getting it and then other times I think they're definitely I think it's in there and those are such important conversations. And as someone who was caught really off guard by having to have, you know, active conversations with my children about death when my husband lost his father and brother in very quick succession and like looking for resources and just trying to figure out how to do this. And I did feel like, gosh, it would have been nice if there was, there was something already, some kind of foundational thing we had talked about without just having to deliver this horrible news. And also that obviously affecting the way that they thought about their own mortality and the other people in their life that were around them. And just, you know, that concept basically that you don't live forever and that being an awakening for them too. And it would have been nice. So I feel like I'm really glad your book is 
coming out is going to be a good resource for people. Mm. It's scary scary for kids growing up. And I also feel like as a society, our education system has totally failed. Like at least in the UK, our education system is still kind of Victorian. You know, we're like, these are the basic essential skills every individual needs to know, but we don't teach them. Forget like spirituality. I'm like, don't even, I I get that's too too much for some people. Even some sort of social and emotional learning, you know, like conflict resolution, Mm. You're not getting along with your friend. You're not getting along. I mean, a lot of adults have the same issues that kids are having. They're literally fighting the same way we were when we were in school. We haven't, like, supported ourselves, I think. Probably because they keep coming back as people fighting with each other, and they have (laughs) to solve it eventually. Okay, so you've got this book coming up, but you also have another book that you've already published. It's a children's book. It's called Gita, the Battle of the World. So I would, it's a graphic novel. Yeah. Is that how you would describe it? A graphic novel? No, I probably not no. as a graphic novel. How would you it describe have beautiful it? illustrations. Okay. Beautiful illustrations, but not like a full graphic novel because it is gorgeous. Yeah. You know, I think you said so many great things about making these issues accessible to children. Is that part of why you wanted to write this book and now your second book, you know, to try to make some of these bigger concepts, more accessible at a wider scale? Yeah, definitely. So Gita Battle of the Worlds is based on that Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita, which was the story. It's a piece of a larger story, which is actually really interesting, even if you don't know the sort of deeper connotations, because it's a war, this massive war that takes place between these two sets of cousins because they're fighting over a piece of land. So you can, it totally feels like a Hollywood movie or a yep. Hollywood movie. Um, and then the Gita is one section of it. And they say that that is supposed to be able to teach you how to win the battle of life. And I was actually pregnant with my first daughter. And I was thinking, this is what I should be expanding. You know, this is the kind of parent I'm going to be. So I read this book. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it's so hard to understand. And then a lot of the translations are straight from the Sanskrit. So they're so, the English is really hard to understand. Yeah. And I was literally thinking, Oh, so it's like reading a textbook. It's so hard. Yeah. And so um, I actually did it with my Jewish friend. We wrote it together. And it was really lovely to do it with a, to, you know, to go through this creative process with a friend. But it was so interesting because she had a completely different perspective because obviously she doesn't know the Gita right. in the same way that I do. So a lot of her questions, I think, were so helpful in making it kind of a universal book that would be appealing to everybody. That's so awesome. And you can buy that book now. Sonal, I have loved this conversation. Thank you for being so open with me. And (laughs) as I explore, I don't know, maybe there's going to be a whole book about me going to explore all of these things. Watch this space. That'll be my... You have to do your eat, eat, pray, love and do your section in India. I know. I need to do the pray part. But eat part, totally on board. (laughs) Well, nobody on this podcast knows how brilliant you are at Garba. That's true. I, it it is a, it is a secret skill of mine. Can I tell that story quickly? Of course, you can cut it out. You're going to say something people. nice about me. Yeah, yes. go for it. <laughs> well, it was my sister in law's 40th birthday party, and we were having garba, which is like Indian dancing. And you know, it can get quite complicated. So Alicia came along with Carlos and her two children, and they all looked amazing in Indian clothes. And I was saying to Alicia. You know, let me just teach you some garba steps on the side. And Alicia's like, no, no, I'll be fine. You know, I was in cheerleading, so I'll be fine. And I'm thinking, okay, like, you haven't seen it. You're not going to be fine. Like, let me just teach you a little bit. And she was just so relaxed, drinking cocktails, fine. So then it gets to the garba, and I'm thinking, all right, I'll take her in for the sort of simple steps. Here we go. (laughs) In charge, charges Alicia into the inner circle. There's sort of multiple circles. The inner circle is the advanced kind of, and there she is like twirling and swirling and going in the moves. And honestly, I, I was so impressed. And I did think to myself, 
Alicia has been Gujarati in a previous incarnation. And that is why her body remembers how to do it. I would totally believe that. And, you know, I can't remember if this got cut out of the book or not when I when I wrote my What If Year. But in college, I applied for this fellowship my senior year at Harvard. There was a fellowship to go. It was like a year funded to go do an international project. And it could be anything And you just sort of had to like recap it after. And so I put this whole proposal together that I wanted to go to India and train as a Bollywood star. I wanted to do the dancing, the singing. And I was like, they always need a token non-Indian person in the movies. I could be that person. This could be my whole career. And shockingly, I did not get the fellowship. It went to somebody who was like going to find a cure for HIV or like save orphans in somewhere. (laughs) It was much less self-interested than mine was. (laughs) But I'm still holding on. Maybe that will be my project. For my next what if year that after happens. I eat, pray, love, then I got to go learn to be a star. But that was such a fun, fun night. And I do love some Garba. So feel free, anybody listening to invite me to your Garba party. <laughs> I'll be a big hit. So it was so great to have you on today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in today to Extra Shot with Alicia Fernandez Miranda. A special shout out to the team at Texture Sound for all their support. If you're in the mood for more of me, pick up a copy of my What If Year, which is out now in bookstores everywhere. Sign up for my mailing list on aliciafmiranda.com or find me on Instagram at aliciafmiranda. I can promise news, views, and memes about Gilmore Girls. If you have feedback, ideas for upcoming segments, burning questions, things you need advice on, please reach out. And otherwise, we'll catch you on the next Extra Shot. Extra Shot.